The Mouse That Roared, Cyprus Edition, today, Monday, March 18th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Stock markets fall after Cyprus announces plans to tax bank depositors to help pay for a bailout. Critics say the move undermines confidence far beyond the island's shores. Essentially, what they have said explicitly to all Europeans is your bank savings may not be safe. And later, Quebec's language wars are back on and crowding out other debates. This whole issue about language is ridiculous because we have a high rate of unemployed people. We're broke, but we're arguing on language. Plus, a TV reality show that lets Palestinians choose a president. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. If you pay attention to financial news, it felt like a mouse roared today. News from the island of Cyprus and the Mediterranean buffeted global markets. It could be jitters about anything that involves a eurozone, or it could be the sign of something bigger. That's what we're going to try to get to the bottom of. This all started with a plan to tax the deposits of bank customers in Cyprus. Cyprus was told by the European Union to get its economic house in order and accept a bailout package. And that package included the tax on all bank deposits. Imagine that. You deposit money at your bank, and you'd get slapped with a tax just for having your money in there. We begin our coverage with the world's Jerry Haddon. The bailout would force Cyprus to ding citizen savings directly with a one-off 7% tax on people's first 100,000 euros and nearly 10% on larger sums. Over the weekend, Cypriot President Nikos Anastasiades told his nation on TV that he had no choice but to accept this condition. This solution is certainly not the one we would have wanted. But it is the least painful under the circumstances, because above all, it leaves the operation of this country in our hands. If Anastasiades, other European leaders and the International Monetary Fund thought announcing the terms over the weekend would soften the blow, they were mistaken. The run on Cypriot banks began Saturday and continues at cash machines across the country, even though most ATMs are now empty. I came here to withdraw money, but all withdrawals have been halted. The situation is tragic. It is unfair. I have a bank loan from a government organization for 12,000 euros to support my daughter's studies. I deposited the money at the bank, and now I'll lose an amount that I have to pay back with interest. No one is surprised by Cypriot's anger. Taxing bank accounts in return for saving those same banks violates a key, if unwritten, principle of euro bailouts since this crisis started in 2007, that the savings of ordinary citizens should be protected. The Cypriot government has said it will compensate account holders, but few seem to trust that pledge. Today, England's Chancellor George Osborne gave his own guarantee to the thousands of British soldiers stationed there. People who are doing their duty for our country in Cyprus will be protected from this Cypriot bank tax. But that doesn't include tens of thousands of British expatriates. In fact, the bulk of the money in Cypriot banks is foreign. And some of it, European officials have long suspected, belongs to criminals trying to launder it. 
Cyprus has comparatively lax banking rules. The Russian government has raised the loudest protests. Russian banks have a $15 billion stake in Cyprus. Russian companies and individuals, nearly $25 billion. Today, Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev said Russia would reconsider its relationship with Cyprus should the tax be levied. He said, this simply looks like confiscating money that doesn't belong to you. I don't know who came up with this idea, but this practice was, unfortunately, quite well known and familiar from the Soviet period, when money was exchanged at certain ratios or not returned. The rest of Europe is alarmed as well. Stock indexes have fallen across the continent. Louise Cooper has a UK-based financial blog called Cooper City. She says the tax threatens to undermine fundamental confidence across the system. Essentially, what they have said explicitly to all Europeans is your bank savings may not be safe. For what? Well, clearly it's politics. I think there's a lot of unhappiness going back for years of tax havens, places with low financial regulation where individuals have hidden their money that is ill-gotten gains. And I think this is politics saying, do you know what? We've been telling you for years we didn't like the way your financial system was running. This is now how we will penalise you. Given the outcry, European leaders are now scrambling to calm jitters across the continent, signalling that Cyprus can renegotiate terms, for example, exempting accounts with less than 100,000 euros. Cypriot lawmakers have put off the vote on the bailout till tomorrow. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon. For more on the impact of Cyprus's banking problems now, let's turn to Stavros Zenios. He's a professor of finance at the University of Cyprus in Nicosia. I'd like to know what the impact on the Cypriot economy is going to be from this announcement that, you know, you're going to get taxed on your deposits. Well, on, on the one hand, we have to understand that there was high indebtedness of the households, but at the same time, uh, they had uh, significant savings. So, and the net was positive. So this is, this is good, and this gives some room for the country to maneuver. Uh, on the other hand, so from this point of view, the haircut bailing in the depositors is not catastrophic for the economy. On the other hand, the fact that they touched the secure deposits, it's raising serious issues about the, the, the stability of the system. And there has been big talk here, both from the local depositors and the foreign depositors in Cyprus, but also I follow the developments in Europe and many other countries that can we really trust now the European Union banking system if they are touching the deposits that so far have been guaranteed. Now, when you say haircut, we're talking about a six and a quarter uh, percent tax on, on deposits. It's a little trim, shall we say, but I'm wondering if Cypriots see it as just a little trim, a little haircut, how much impact has this had on ordinary people in Cyprus? We have to understand that it's not a tax on an annual basis. It's a one-time levy. So people wake up in the morning and they discover that they are 6% poorer. Now, this, on people that were counting on this money as their source of income, like retirees, or someone who has their children in college in the United States or in England or in Germany, this is a serious problem. You put 100,000 on the side, you discover one morning you have 7,000 less. This is a two or three months fee for the kids. Then there are those who have this for the long run, and there the, the interpretation is rather, uh, well, fine, we, we lost some of the interest we had gained over the last few years. Uh, but, but people here are very upset. And what is really upsetting is this uh, sense of helplessness. 
So uh, the New York Times' Paul Krugman uh, noted in his blog that uh, all this business in Cyprus is like the Europeans holding up a neon sign written in Greek and Italian saying, time to stay to run on your banks. So uh, the banks are closed, but when they open, will there be a run on banks? And do you think this is kind of a little test in Cyprus to see if this kind of thing might fly in other countries? Well, Paul Krugman, he, he gave a fair warning. I'm, I'm not sure if there will be a run on the bank in Cyprus because where will people take their money? But this has raised an issue about, the, as I said before, of the stability and the resilience of the banking system. And if Cypriots uh, contain it, that they do not run on Tuesday or Wednesday, this does not mean that it, it will go the same way in Spain or in Italy. From Cypriots, there is a sense this right now that what has been done has been done. Uh, the rest of Europe, the element is if they have done it in Cyprus, they can do it in Spain or they can do it in Italy. And what about you, Professor Zenius? Uh, have you lost anything? Are you six and a quarter percent poorer today? Well, I'm not going to reveal if I have more than 100,000 or less than 100,000. Yes, I am. I am poorer. I was working in the United States for many years. Actually, I spent some time in Boston. I brought uh, savings back home. And, and I'm upset that the savings are lost. But um, I take a more calm perspective in my case because this is money I had for the long run. I say, okay, until my children go to college, I need to save some more. But this is money I earned outside my country. I brought it back. So, yes, I'm very upset, but I'm not going to run to the bank tomorrow. Well, always good to hear a calm voice on the financial issues that typically cause panic. Stavros Zenios, professor of finance at the University of Cyprus in Nicosia. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. The White House says it's monitoring the controversy in Cyprus closely, but that's far from the biggest item on President Obama's agenda right now. Obama is getting ready for a much-anticipated trip to Israel and the Palestinian territories this week. Most of his two-day visit will be spent talking with Israeli officials and touring Israeli sites. By contrast, the president plans to spend just a few hours meeting with Palestinians. That may be one reason why many Palestinians fail to see much value in this visit. The world's Matthew Bell met with some Palestinians who are in the process of choosing their own president, in a way, to listen to their take on the Obama visit. Palestinians haven't been able to vote in an actual presidential election since 2006, but they will have the chance to play a part, by text message, in choosing the winner of a new reality TV show called The President. <laughs> Stand by. Three, two, one. Filming for the show is underway. At a studio outside Bethlehem, a panel of five judges puts political questions to the young contestants. They have two minutes each to answer by giving an impromptu speech aimed at the Palestinian public. The judges hold up green or red cards to determine who makes it to the next round. On his way out of the studio, Malik Abu Al-Falat seems disappointed. The 27-year-old who works at an environmental organization says he was serious about wanting the top job in Palestinian politics. But even though he didn't make the cut, he's still happy to have given it his best shot. Uh, I'm not that guy. If if they uh, say no, then I will be out. We are in front of VIBs, and this is really honest and very good opportunity. When I ask some of the participants what they make of President Obama's plans to stop by Ramallah and Bethlehem, they are very diplomatic. 26-year-old Bashar Farashat is a business school graduate from Hebron. He says Palestinians in the West Bank are skeptical, 
But as for himself, Farashat still has faith that President Obama can help improve the lives of Palestinians by influencing their neighbor. The most important thing that can affect on Israel is the United States. But most Palestinians would say that the U.S. has failed to change Israel's policies for the better. Samira Shaheen is a 25-year-old from Nablus who works for an NGO that helps Palestinian women. She says Palestinians see President Obama as a man of empty talk, especially since the recognition of the state of Palestine at the United Nations last year. We start to feel boring. He has to bring something new and effective, not just uh, talking and talking and keep talking. For starters, Shaheen says she'd like to see the American president get the Palestinians and Israelis negotiating again, but this time in good faith. Obama has to force in Israel. Yeah, he has to force. Uh, not just the Palestinian has to commit the negotiations. The Israel has also to, to do that. The man behind the president reality show says there's a message here for Barack Obama. Ra'ed Othman is with the Man Network, based in Bethlehem. The time for new Palestinian elections, he says, are long overdue. And Mr. Obama should make it clear to his partners in the Palestinian Authority that this is unacceptable. We have 1,200 young men and women between 20 years old to 35 who participate in this program. That's saying to Mr. Barack Obama, we are ready to be a state like other states. Support the idea of that in Palestine, we will stop funding, we will stop supporting you. One condition, if you don't have election every four years, then we will stop this. In other words, President Obama has an opportunity with this visit. He can show that the United States is serious about promoting democracy by making it an explicit priority in the Palestinian territories. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Bethlehem in the West Bank. Still ahead on the show, finding an intriguing parallel between the U.S.-Mexico border and Checkpoint Charlie on PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, and I'm joined by The World's language editor, Patrick Cox, who's just returned from the front lines of a linguistic war. It's a war... Uh, we haven't heard about in a while, and it's raging in Quebec. Yeah, uh, you could say there's been something of a ceasefire in Quebec for several years, but no longer. And the reason is, last year, Quebec's separatist party, the Parti Québécois, came back into power. They are now running the province for the first time in 10 years. And when they're running Quebec, a lot of the province's political battles tend to focus on language. Here's a little taste of that from last month. Quebec's language watchdog has targeted one of Montreal's most popular restaurants. And it's because of the word pasta. Buonanotte on Saint Laurent got a letter from the OQLF saying their menu violates the French language charter because pasta is an Italian word and there's no French translation. The government wanted this Italian restaurant to use uh, the word pot, that's French for pasta, instead of pasta. That's correct, yeah, and it caused a huge outcry uh, in Quebec, in Beyond that, in Canada, in fact, all over the world, there were headlines and there were kind of mocking headlines. You know, they used terms like the language police and they talked about linguistic puritanism, that kind of thing. And 
the pasta incident is now pretty much universally known in Quebec as Pasta Gate. Doesn't give a lot of wiggle room to the pasta lovers. Where does it leave public opinion? Well, it's as divided as ever. And, and here's the interesting thing, is that it's not necessarily divided along linguistic lines. Just because you're a French speaker doesn't mean to say that you're in favor of protection of the French language. And just because you're an English speaker doesn't mean to say that you're against it. Let's hear your report now from Quebec. The town of Huntington in Quebec is just a few miles north of the New York border. It's a small mill town founded by the British. Well, it was a mill town. Now all seven mills are closed. This is Huntington's mayor, Stéphane Gendron. He oversees a mixed community of French speakers, francophones, and English speakers, anglophones. When we have our meetings, usually we switch from French to English in the same uh, sentence. It's, it's like uh, breathing air. We don't care. You're an Anglophone, then I'll answer to you in English, then I'll explain in French, and we switch. Sounds reasonable, but that linguistic back and forth is technically against the law in Quebec. Yes, we got an email from the uh, Office Québécois de la langue française. Quebec's French language office. And they stated specific points, like this one, that as a mayor has an administration, we're not authorized to communicate in English with our citizens. To do so would violate the French language charter. The charter came into effect in 1977, and it made French the official language of Quebec. The only municipalities exempt from using just French were the ones with a majority of native English speakers. Huntington has a slight majority of French speakers, so no official business can be conducted in English, no public meetings, no street signs, no notices about garbage collection, Nothing. Bonjour, messieurs. Je vous demanderai de vous identifier. Right now, Quebec's provincial assembly is holding hearings on a bill that would tighten the language laws. The bill would strip dozens of cities of their bilingual status, and it would require businesses with 25 or more employees to communicate in French. Currently, only larger companies have to do that. The bill has lost support since Pastergate. But the hearings will continue for six weeks, according to its sponsors, because they say they want to show that French remains vulnerable in Quebec and should be further protected. People say, why do you need to do that? Let things go uh, as they stand, go with the flow. This is Jean-Francois Lisey, a prominent member of the ruling Parti Québécois. Well, in the rest of North America, they let things go with the flow for French, and it, it, it didn't go well for French. Lisey says English has what he calls a massive gravitational pull, and you can only counter that with new regulations. The public face of Quebec, says Lisey, must be French. And if we hold this line, we're going to stay distinct and some of our distinction, being Francophone in North America, makes us one of the biggest exporters in the world and makes us a big creators. And if everybody else doesn't understand it, well, that's the price you pay for being original. A lot of people don't understand it right now. Many businesses, like that Italian restaurant, have come forward saying they're being targeted by language inspectors for using foreign words, like the words on and off, discovered on a restaurant microwave. The language agency went so far that the government was forced to rein them in. Now the agency has a new director with orders to be more flexible. But many Quebecers, French and English speakers, believe in their language laws. People like Montreal writer Julie Barlow. Even though I'm an English speaker and it's, it's not really what most English speakers in Quebec feel, I'm entirely in favor of, of a certain control 
over language in Quebec because we are a small population in the middle of a huge sea of English speakers. Barlow says she doesn't understand why some municipalities want to hang on to their bilingual status. I don't know. Personally, I don't have much sympathy for it. I can't imagine why anybody would want to live in a tiny community of English speakers and live like insulated and isolated from the rest of the, the province. The Montreal suburb of Côte-Saint-Luc is one such place. It's currently permitted to communicate bilingually with its residents, which it does with gusto. Bienvenue à la Carnival d'hiver de Côte-Saint-Luc pour l'année 2013. Je suis Anthony Housefather, le maire de Côte-Saint-Luc. Je suis ici avec Mix Brownstein. Mix, this is a great day, isn't it? It's absolutely beautiful here. One of the nicest days, probably the nicest day we've ever had for Winter Carnival. Absolument fantastique. Côte-Saint-Luc is one of the places that stands to lose its bilingual status. It also happens to be home to a large Jewish population, among them Shelley Rothman Ben Haim. I'm a, a tenant in a duplex, and my landlady, she's in her late 80s, and she really needs the uh, English communication. The landlady's native language is Yiddish. She also speaks English, but not French, and there's a good reason for that. I don't know if you're aware of the story that when the Jews first came to Montreal, came to Quebec, they weren't allowed to go to the uh, French schools because they were Catholic-based. So they had to go to the Protestant schools, and they were English-based. But um, nowadays... Most Jews of my generation and the younger generation, they're all bilingual. But uh, for the elderly community here, I think they need bilingual notices. They do in the mill town of Huntingdon too, says its mayor, Stéphane Gendron. But what he says they really need is jobs. This whole issue about language is, is ridiculous because we have a high rate of unemployed people. We have a lot of people on welfare too. We're broke. But we're arguing on language. Arguing in French, of course, and in English. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. We have more online on this story. You can hear how Quebec's language issues are affected by immigration in Patrick's latest World in Words podcast. Also, if, as we mentioned earlier, the word pasta is not allowed in Quebec, what about some other words from foreign cuisines, like falafel, feu, maybe ramen is verboten? We will have a slideshow of Montreal restaurants whose very names may cross a linguistic line. That's at theworld.org. No linguistic issues apparently in Quebec when it comes to daring prison escape schemes. Did you hear about this one? Yesterday, two inmates were sprung via helicopter from a prison outside Montreal. The chopper's pilot thought he was giving two tourists a joyride over Quebec's ski country. Instead, one of them holds a gun to the pilot's head and orders him to fly to the prison. That needed no translation. Then they dropped ropes and lifted the two escapees out. The plan turned sour later when all four were arrested after a gunfight with police. I guess no translation needed there either. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Stepped-up border security in and around Laredo, Texas, has people confused about which side of the border they're on. Because we've had a lot of people here in the store say, wow, this is like shopping in, the, in Texas. Well, we are in Texas. And, or they'll say, do you accept dollars? I yes, we accept dollars. Why wouldn't we? Well, this is Mexico, isn't it? I go, no, this is Laredo, Texas. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Steubenville, Ohio, you may have heard, found itself in world headlines this weekend. Two young men convicted of raping a 16-year-old girl last year. Whether Ohio or any other place in the world, sex crimes have been front and center in a global discussion that we at The World have been tracking. It's a discussion that was triggered after that horrific gang rape and murder of a young woman in India last December. And once again in India this weekend, another gang rape of a woman while her companion was forced to watch. This time it was a Swiss tourist who was camping with her husband near a village in the central state of Madhya Pradesh. Today, police paraded five suspects in front of TV cameras, saying the men had confessed to the brutal acts. Urvashi Butalia is a feminist writer and publisher. She's in Delhi. Uh, Urvashi, it's shocking to hear this news again. What were the circumstances? Can you tell us? From what I understand from newspaper reports, the two were on a cycling tour and they had landed at Mumbai and were cycling their way across India. And they set up camp uh, somewhere near a highway in Madhya Pradesh. And it was there during the night that the woman was gang raped by these several men. And what's been the public reaction? Uh, Any difference in the coverage? There has been quite a lot of anger and quite a lot of outrage and people have been writing about it. Also a terrible sense of uh, shame that this simply does not seem to stop. But there has also been some concern about why the two tourists were actually traveling in a place which would be deemed generally quite unsafe. Parts of Madhya Pradesh are extremely deserted, and um, even to drive through them at night is uh, not advisable. Right. Well, how did the December rape and murder of that young woman change the public reaction to this episode this weekend of this Swiss woman? I think the change is that there is a widespread concern and there is widespread anger at government inaction and at the fact that the state has not been taking the whole issue of violence against women seriously enough. So at every such incident, and this isn't the only one since December 16th, there have been others, There's been quite a lot of anger and quite a lot of pressure on the state, uh, especially from feminist groups. Is there any such law on the table right now that's being discussed? I mean, what has the government done to uh, enact measures to protect women? Well, they did actually. The first thing they did was uh, to set up this committee, which recommended uh, um, a whole lot of really, really excellent changes. The Justice Varma Committee, which worked really fast and within 30 days came up with the Uh, with a document that is a really amazing document, pro-women, looking at a whole range of things. The state did not take account of many of the changes recommended by the Justice Varma Committee, but they did take account of some. And actually, the law is in Parliament right now, and it is due to be passed tomorrow. I think some provisions of it will be watered down. There already is news that uh, the other political parties have put pressure on the state to water down. For example, earlier they had taken into account stalking and voyeurism as crimes against women. And the BJP, the right-wing Hindu party, has put pressure saying you mustn't do that because it will encourage people to trump up false cases against young men, which is a, which is a load of rubbish. We are hoping that the law will also take into account marital rape, but we don't know. 
if it would do that, that would be a major step forward. It, it, it sounds like you're somewhat encouraged with caution. Am I wrong? With caution. You know, the thing is that given the kind of outrage and anger and the desire for change, given the fact that there is such a fantastic document in front of them to draw on, I think they would be foolish to lose the momentum and lose the moment. Writer and publisher Urvashi Butalia speaking with us from Delhi. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Marco. There is a lot of talk about immigration reform in Washington, but no vote in Congress yet. One reason for that is that a number of Republican lawmakers argue that no plan should proceed without more security at the U.S.-Mexico border. That resonates with some border residents, but not all. We sent the world's Jason Margolis to southeast Texas to find out what people there make of this push for more security. You can go to theworld.org to see the pictures Jason took as he reported the story. What Jason found is this. Many there feel there's too much security already. The city of Laredo, Texas, has a bit of a branding problem. Raymond Camina says when some people walk into his shop, Basket and Pottery Alley, they're confused. A lot of people assume they're in Mexico because we've had a lot of people here in the store say, wow, this is like shopping in, the, in Texas. Well, we are in Texas. You know, or they'll say, do you accept dollars? I, yes, we accept dollars. Why wouldn't we? This sounds crazy, but it's happened to Camina more than a few times. At first, we used to laugh about it, but then it got more prevalent, you know, over and over. Like, wow, there is a big confusion. Kamina thinks people get confused because there's a security checkpoint on the highway, 29 miles north of this border city. These interior checkpoints are second lines of defense used by the Department of Homeland Security to thwart illegal immigration and drug smuggling. Kamina says he understands the need for security here, but shoppers are afraid to come to Laredo. And Washington's calls for more security aren't helping. I think it's a little over-exaggerated. But there again, I don't have the intelligence they have. But what I see just from as a business point of view, it makes it seem like we're being invaded. And it, I think what we hear a lot are the helicopters. The helicopters all night overhead, and then they stop. And I live one stand. mile from the border, and I have Border Patrol cars racing down my street all the time. To what end, I don't know. But we have kids who play kickball on the street, so it's kind of like, what's that about? That was Michael Seifert, a community activist in the town of Alamo, preceded by Sandra Rocha Taylor, a business leader in Laredo. Everybody I spoke with along this stretch of border shakes their head at the idea of more border security. Homemade signs along the Rio Grande River read simply, no border wall. Some say that money spent on the border wall, which can cost as much as $21 million per mile, is misguided. Juanita Valdez-Cox, who runs the immigrant rights organization Lupe, says this part of Texas is among the poorest in the country. We have seen the billions of dollars that have been spent on security. And then you think about the real issues as far as health care, the real issues as far as, you know, lack of, of a good education. And so that's where we think that the resources should go to. We just don't believe that. They should continue to use the security issue as a problem so that they don't have to deal with fixing the real issues of immigration reform. It's just a cop-out in our opinion. She adds that, of course, people want to be safe and they support some security, but enough is enough. Living here, I've never felt in danger. We don't feel that, that pressing uh, urgency of the violence issue that they talk about in Washington. According to the statistics, this place is pretty safe. These are crime rates 
in Austin, Brownsville, Dallas, Fort Worth. Victor Rodriguez is the chief of police in nearby McAllen, Texas. He's compiled reports comparing major crime categories of nearby border towns versus big Texas cities like Dallas and Houston. You're three to four times safer along this stretch of border. Of course, part of the credit has to go to the increased presence of federal agents who patrol here. Still, Rodriguez is tired of how the border is described as some sort of a war zone. My God, you know, do we cut it off at the San Antonio River now and give give the rest of the state back to Mexico? It's so bad down there kind of stuff, you know. That skewed perception also keeps Mexicans away, too. But that's not because they're afraid. It's just harder to visit. Sandra Rocha Taylor's office in Laredo is just a few yards from the Rio Grande River. Outside her window, hundreds of people are lined up on a pedestrian bridge waiting to enter the United States. The lines are tremendous. Um, You can wait two, three, four hours. It just depends on what time of the day it is. I don't think there can ever be too much security, but there's too much time lost. Maria Eugenia Calderon-Porter directs the Binational Center at Texas A&M International University in Laredo. Laredo is America's busiest inland port, and she says Washington needs to direct funding to getting the lines moving. You have people standing in line for hours in the sun, cars idling, trucks idling to cross at the World Trade Bridge, losing time and money. So we have to be more reasonable, okay? If our list for bringing somebody, allowing somebody to come in is a very long list, provide the manpower and the facilities to do it with. Of course, Washington's focus on security isn't just about protecting border towns. It's about stopping illegal entry and keeping smuggled drugs out of places like Missouri, Georgia, and Ohio. That argument gets little sympathy here, though. Again, Michael Seifert. So the other side of that, I would like to say to the senator from Ohio, you guys need to clean up your ship putting in programs that help people with addiction problems, I think that really needs to be looked at seriously because the flow is not going to stop. It's too profitable. It's way too much money. Seifert says a bigger wall or more drones won't stop smugglers or people determined to enter the U.S. to start a new life. It's an unending story. Is the border secure? Well, it is. Or it's not. Perhaps the better question is, how do you decide if the border is secure? and who ultimately will get to make that determination. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Laredo, Texas. Answering those questions Jason just raised isn't easy. It can be a very subjective exercise, in fact. But Edward Alden has been trying for the past couple of years. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington. Alden testified last week in front of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs about ways to measure the effectiveness of border enforcement. So, uh, Edward Alden, it seems a big debate in Washington right now as we wait for the runway to clear before any sort of substantive immigration reform happens is assessing whether U.S. borders are secure or not. Many Republicans say no. The White House says they're plenty secure. So how does the United States currently measure the effectiveness of border enforcement? Really, the only thing that the Department of Homeland Security does is it counts the number of arrests it makes. And, and so if you have one individual who's arrested two or three times, that counts as two or three apprehensions. And they release that number every year. And the number last year at the Board of Mexico was about 350,000, which is way, way down from where it was, uh, say, in 2000, when that number was over 1.6 million. So a big decline, clearly, in the number of people trying to enter. But it's hard to know exactly what that apprehensions figure 
means. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, what do, just, what, what do pure arrests say about the porousness of the borders? Does it say something? Well, it's something? hard to know be, because you don't know how many people are trying. So it doesn't tell you that apprehensions out of how many people who were attempting to enter. The presumption is it means that fewer people are trying and so that enforcement is effectively deterring people from trying to enter illegally. But we really don't know that. That's a supposition based on those numbers. So one point that you've made is that the U.S. government has failed to develop good measures for fixing goals and determining progress uh, in terms of border security, um, and that the government's data is kind of cloudy and incomplete. What does that mean? Well, it just means that you know when Congress asks the Department of Homeland Security, give us some evidence about where border security is at, DHS has very little to provide. All they can offer is they can say, well, we have twice as many border patrol agents as we had a decade ago, or crime rates in El Paso or Laredo are very low by national standards. But DHS can't provide some of the data that helps answer the question that members of Congress want answers to, which is how difficult is it to get across that border illegally? And and I think until that evidence starts to be provided to Congress and the public, it's going to be very hard to have a sensible debate over these issues because nobody really has good data off which to base their positions. Is it your position that the Department of Homeland Security has the data and they're just not providing it or they don't even have the data? I think in a lot of cases they have the data and they're not providing it. I think they're worried about the political consequences of coming out with that data. And in other cases, I think they just haven't put the effort into gathering and assembling the data in the way they should. So as we're waiting for kind of this baseline of data so we know what to improve on, do you see any room for compromise in Congress? I I do think so. I think there are serious efforts underway to try first to require that the administration present more of this data to Congress and the public, and secondly, to try to make the best assessments with the available data, perhaps put some triggers in place that tie certain elements of the bill to continue progress on border security. So I think there is a serious effort to move from the debate we've had over the last four or five years, which is just this debate, is the border secure, is the border not secure, to trying to actually get quite precise about what we mean, get some data in there and try to get some agreement on where we want to move going forward. And let me just ask you, what do you think? Do you think the border is secure right now? I think it's far more secure than it's ever been before. But I think we have to be realistic. We are a big, open country. And people are always going to get in if they're really determined. Um, We've done a little bit of historical research on what was probably the most secure border in history, which was the Cold War inter-German border. So we're talking about a border here with comparatively about three times as many agents as we have on the border with Mexico. You're talking about A large no-man's land. Yeah, with barbed wire, uh, shoot-to-kill, floodlights. About a 1,000 people a year still made it across that border. The apprehension rate there was roughly 95%. So we are not going to get a perfectly secure border with Mexico or any other country. So we do have to be realistic here. But no question, there's been a lot of progress. Edward Alden, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you. Thanks very much, Marco. Rio de Janeiro, known for its many breathtaking views and landmarks, its mountains, the beach at Ipanema, its shabby chic favelas, the famous Christ the Redeemer statue. We're looking for another famous Rio landmark in today's GeoQuiz. It's a distinct cone-shaped building, a cathedral right in Rio's downtown Centro district. Standing room capacity, 20,000 people. Inside are four stained glass windows that rise 200 feet from floor to ceiling. Now, imagine seeing this modern architectural gem whiz by as you fly past wearing something called a wingsuit. We'll talk with someone who just did that and landed safely. You need to have the correct angle of attack 
It's absolutely awesome, especially for myself. I love it. And we posted the video of his amazing flyover at theworld.org, and we'll talk to one of the daredevils when we come back with the name of that cathedral in just a bit. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We're going to get the answer to our geo-quiz now from a wingsuit daredevil. Joki Sommer is from Norway. He recently jumped out of an ultralight trike plane as it flew over Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and zipped over the city skyline wearing a special aerodynamic wingsuit. He literally flew in, narrowly staring past skyscrapers as he and a companion made their high-speed descent. Here's Sommer's description of how the early morning stunt began. Uh, we started on a beach. It takes off at the beach. And then we flew for about 25 minutes. We timed it so that we wanted to exit the ultralight at 5.45. And that is because you have a lot of air traffic in this area. Uh, in we morning. did not have permits to do this. So we knew that the first airplane that comes in that morning was uh, five minutes past six in the morning. We had 20 minutes of buffer before the first commercial aircraft comes in. The moment, Jokey, that you actually jump off that ultralight aircraft over Rio de Janeiro, what's that like? What's going through your head at that moment? Uh, at that moment, it's more like, okay, finally I am in my own little safe bubble. <laughs> and I know I, like, I, I can start doing my work. It's always like, oh, okay, do you think that will go? And then you have a lot of thoughts, you know, coming up. But as soon as I left and as soon as I was stable and uh, have the approach towards the building, I knew that the jump was already a success because I could see that, okay, we we're on the exact approach that I wanted to have and the exact angle that we needed to, to do it in a safe way. I mean, if there's one part that, you know, really stands out for anybody who's watched it, it's that jaw-dropping moment where you and the other flyer thread the needle. You go right through these two, it's the Ventura Corporate Towers in uh, downtown Rio, a bit like the Time Warner building on uh, the south side of Central Park, where you've got these two towers and you go right through them. There's like very little room to pass through. Did that worry you at all? I know you might be a little bit disappointed when I tell you this, but <laughs> the fact about going through the building was the most easy part of the whole jump. And of course, the part of the jump that I feel 100% aware and safe of what I do. Why? Because uh, it's such a, I mean, what is it, like uh, maybe 50 feet at the most between those two buildings? No, it's, uh, it's about seven or eight meters. It's, wow, so even uh, less. It's not even, it's like 25 feet or something. The flying through the building is more or less, it's just a straight line and it's, it's no big deal. But you need to have the correct angle of attack. So that problem starts already when you're exiting the aircraft. Now, there's one building I want you to focus on. It's the answer to our geo-quiz today. And you actually see it in the video. You're flying by a cathedral. Do you know what it is? Yes, yes, the, the cathedral in Rio. And we were planning to do this jump the opposite way and land next to the cathedral. But uh, we were a little bit worried because of some, some high obstacles in that area. So we decided to change the direction. And after I saw the video, I was very happy that we did that because then you can see the cathedral really nice on the approach. Mm. And that cathedral is called what? Uh, you know what? That I don't remember right now. <laughs> it's a target that got scrubbed along the way. I'll let you in on the secret. It's St. Sebastian's Cathedral uh, in downtown Rio de Janeiro. So now that you've conquered Rio, what's the next adventure? 
I might go and do something in some big city in the States. I'm not sure which one yet and which one I will have the opportunity to do more of this urban proximity stuff. But this is uh, something I'm working hard on to, to do right now. So that's a big goal. He is the Birdman of Rio, not to mention many other places around the world. Jokey Summer, thanks for telling us about flying over Rio de Janeiro in a wingsuit. You're a crazy wild man, and I appreciate you for doing it. <laughs> thanks a lot, man. And if you want to see what it's like to fly into Rio in a wingsuit, it's so, so cool. Just go to theworld.org. And we stay in Brazil for, this is really interesting, one of the more cool Beatles tributes I've ever heard. They're Bloco Sargento Pimenta, or Sgt. Pepper's Carnival Band, if you will. The band was the big thing at this year's Carnival in Rio de Janeiro. About 100,000 people turned out to see them, and they got voted Best Bloco by one newspaper in Rio. Here's a sample of what Bloco Sargento Pimenta sounds like. Sergeant Leandro Donner is a singer with the band. I asked him if he and fellow band member Felipe Fernandez are the John and Paul of the group. <laughs> kind of, yeah, you could say that. Uh, we always discuss that because I, I sing more Paul McCartney lead songs and he sings more John Lennon songs. So I'm Paul, I'm Paul his John. How many people are actually in Bloco do Sargento Pimento? That's a tricky question because actually if we are to- you are talking about the carnival, parade group we have like four or sometimes five horns and the singers which are three or four and a hundred percussionists why is this music such a success now with brazilian audiences have the beatles always been popular in brazil i think that the beatles were always popular here too that their records started to arrive a little bit after they were released in england and united states our audience is very a lot of different kinds of people so I think Beatles songs are popular, but people who don't like Beatles as well, but they like Carnival, they get to know the Beatles through the Carnival language. So we hope to to help people to know their songs too, and we hope that happens. You felt that you didn't need to translate Beatles lyrics into Portuguese. You could just wheel out these Beatles tunes into the Carnival, and uh, people would enjoy them in English for what they were worth. Yeah, we, we prefer, of course, to, to keep the songs in English. And uh, a lot of people who go to our show, Brazilian people, they sing the songs. Most of them understand the lyrics. But it's the only block which people that come from outside of Brazil can understand the lyrics. So the carnival experience, which is, which is thrilling th- to a, an English or American tourist, for example, they can experience that, the, the same carnival experience, but singing along. And that's the, the difference in our blocko. That's a thing that we have. We must keep in, in always in mind. So you have a lot of uh, Anglophones in that crowd of 100,000 people when you were playing at Carnival. Were there a lot of Brazilians there as well? Yeah, you would be surprised. A, a lot of a lot of Brazilians dressing as big bands and uh, English soldiers and Eleanor Rigby's and <laughs> no, like London Bridges. You have Abbey Road signs. Really, people just dress up like with English themes. So. I think the people here like like the BBC's country. Well, Leandro Donner from Bloco do Sargento Pimento, uh, you guys rock, and you better watch out. You're going to start touring soon. I see great things ahead for you. Yeah, that's great. Un, dois, três, quatro. Un, dois, close your eyes, and I'll kiss you. 
That's Bloco Sargento Pimenta's unplugged version of All My Lovin'. And just so we're clear, unplugged for them means working without the usual 100 samba percussionists. You can see and hear the full samba sound at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. I'll pretend that I'm kissing The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.